I'm Vanessa Pritchard. Welcome to this podcast from Keep Believing Ministries. Today's message was given by Dr. Ray Pritchard. At Keep Believing Ministries, we want to encourage and equip people to keep believing in Jesus. You can find us online at www.keepbelieving.com. Stay tuned for this special podcast. Here is the series we are in. Letter to the 21st century. What would the first generation of Christians say to us in the 21st century? Well, they would say, listen more, talk less, calm down. They would say, repent, receive God's word, obey what it says, and you will be blessed. They would say, talk less, care more, and keep clean. And that brings us then to the beginning of chapter 2 for the message entitled, The Problem of Partiality. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are equal. With those words, Abraham Lincoln changed the course of history. Fast forward 100 years. On a sweltering August day in 1963, a quarter million people traveled to Washington, D.C. for the largest civil rights demonstration in American history. Gathered in front of the Lincoln Memorial, the multitudes heard a 34-year-old preacher named Martin Luther King, Jr. His words struck home in the heart of America. Something inside the nation stirred that day when he said, I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Those four words, I have a dream, came to be the rallying cry of an oppressed people who would no longer be denied justice. The words of Dr. King, the words of President Lincoln, hearken back to this statement from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All men are created equal. That's a true statement. The Bible teaches us four crucial facts we must never forget. All people are created equally in God's image. Number two, all are loved by God. Number three, all are stained and tainted by sin. Number four, all are able to be redeemed. Those four facts form the basis of the doctrine of Christian equality. All people, regardless of their background, are significant, loved, fallen, and redeemable. That's what Acts 10.34 means when it says that God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't play favorites. As far as God is concerned, there are only two races, the saved race and the lost race. But there is a sense in which all men are created equal is not true. Or at least you could say this much. There is a sense in which all men are not created equal. That is an equally true statement. We don't all have the same background, the same culture, the same skin color, the same language, the same IQ, the same economic conditions, the same abilities, the same opportunities. There are 
vast differences spread across the spectrum of humanity. So, which is it? All men are created equal or all men are not created equal? Well, the answer is something like this. Before God, in His sight, we are all created equal. But on earth, we are not all created equal. In the church, we are all one in Christ. But there are many differences among us. Now, if you go back and read the New Testament, what you discover is the early church struggled mightily with these differences. In fact, the New Testament itself bears witness to the many divisions among the first generation of believers in Christ. You had Jews and Gentiles. You had Greeks and non-Greeks. You had rich and poor. You had slave and free, circumcised and uncircumcised, male and female, young and old, vegetarians and meat eaters, Sabbath keepers and non-Sabbath keepers, wine drinkers and total abstainers. The church has wrestled with these issues for 2,000 years. James shines a light on the problem of partiality by focusing on an issue most of us never think about. He uses the example of the man with the gold ring to force us to face our hidden tendency to discriminate inside the church of Jesus Christ. So let's see what he has to say. He begins in verse 1 of chapter 2 with a clear command. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Now, you may have a translation that says partiality. Either word is okay. What would qualify as favoritism or partiality? Here's the interesting thing. The Greek word that's translated favoritism or partiality, it means it means to accept a face. It means to look at a face. It means to accept or reject people on the basis of how they look. To reckon people in or out by their facial appearance, ultimately by their entire outward appearance. Now, the word means, in the largest sense, to judge on the basis of outward appearance. You can get an idea of how this works by, uh, by perusing an issue of People Magazine. I did that for you this week, so you don't have to do it yourself. You know what People Magazine is? You've seen it in the, in the, in, by the checkout counter. It, what's in People Magazine? Basically, faces. Pictures of faces. And, and unless you've done something noble or done something very criminal, the only faces that are in People Magazine are the beautiful, famous faces of today. If you want to know who the world regards as important, you just pick up an issue of People magazine. It'll tell you. You see pictures of the current beautiful people, such as Natalie Portman, Taylor Swift, George Clooney, Jennifer Garner, J-Lo, Kanye West, Kim Kardashian, Brad Pitt, Mindy Kalin, and of course, the royals, Prince William, Kate Middleton, Prince Harry, and the rest of the crew from the other side of the pond. If you read People magazine, or similar magazines, and there are many others, or you watch that TMZ show on TV, you'll find, you'll find out in just a quick moment who the world considers beautiful. 
You'll know who's in, who's out, who's up, and who's down. You'll discover whose marriage is on the rock, rocks, which couple is no longer a couple, and so on. There must be a market for this because I don't think there's a checkout counter in America without copies of People magazine for sale. The world is impressed by outward beauty, money, and all the trappings of earthly power. But 1 Samuel 16:7 reminds us man looks on the outward, but God does what? God looks at the heart. I think, before we jump to that last half, just meditate on the first part of that statement. We all tend to make judgments, snap judgments, based on appearance. It's all too easy inside the church to conclude having money means we deserve special treatment. And the lack of money must mean that something is wrong with us. So, what might qualify as favoritism in the church? Well, here's a few examples. Favoring our group over some other group. Ethnic jokes, racial slurs, looking down at someone who doesn't dress like us, talk like us, look like us, telling a new person who doesn't quite fit in, you might not be comfortable here, encouraging our children not to mingle with other groups, refusing to be friends with people outside our social status, assuming the superiority of your own ethnic group, complaining that too many of those people, whoever they are, have started attending the church refusing to vote for a qualified elder candidate because he happens to be, you can fill in the blanks there, telling a friend you don't mind those people coming to church, but you hope they will leave their music at the door. Why is this so wrong? Because in the church, we are all believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. If we truly believe in Jesus, then we ought to welcome anyone who truly shares our common faith in Christ. Said another way, faith in Christ rises above the things that divide us. It matters more than money or social class or language or culture or skin color. We have no right to reject a fellow believer on the basis solely of those secondary matters. Now, that's sort of the general principle. It's possible, it's possible that we would all nod okay at that and try to wriggle off the hook a little bit, you know? So, James is going to give us a shocking example to force us to think about what he's talking about. Shocking example. Verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting. He's talking about Sunday morning church. Wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. Driving a Mercedes Benz, no doubt. And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. Rich man comes in one door. Maybe poor man comes in the other door. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and you say, come on, brother, here's a really good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, maybe he smells a little bit. Maybe he's got alcohol on his breath. Maybe he hasn't, uh, maybe he doesn't look right to you. But you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is the strange case of the snooty usher. Don't kid yourself. This kind of thing happens in church all the time. The rich and powerful get the good seats while the poor are told to stand in the back. Now, what's the problem here? Is the problem here that that we care so much for the rich man or is it that we care so little for the poor man? James is not arguing that we should do less for the rich. He's simply saying 
We shouldn't discriminate against the poor. So I stop and say, why do we favor the rich man? The answer is obvious. He's got money. And a man with money can always help the church out. We like to say the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's not always level in the church. We tend to favor people with money because we think they can help us reach our goals. From time to time, you know, I, I get to speak at these conferences for, for, for large donors. I've done this a number of times. And, and always wonderful affairs and great food and, and challenge people to, to make great gifts for great ministry objectives around the world. You know what? I'm always, I'm always happy to do that because I think it's a good thing when Christians at any income level, I think it's a good thing when Christians are challenged to be generous towards God's work. Question, is it wrong to focus on reaching those donors who can help us in big ways? No, no it's not. But it's easy to fall into the mentality that we should favor those who have been blessed with an abundance of wealth. Here's the truth. True of Word of Life, certainly true of Keep Believing Ministries, true of every church I've ever been around, most churches and ministries go forward because of small gifts from people of moderate means. We ought to thank God for single moms and senior adults and new believers and widows whose gifts may not be large, but whose prayers rise up to heaven with power greater than any million-dollar gift. So there's the principle. There's the shocking example. We're going to go deeper now. A bracing reminder. James is now going to give us two reasons why favoritism inside the church is a sin. Number one, he's going to say in verse 5, favoritism denies kingdom principles. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? You know, what was it? A Lincoln who said, God must love the common man. He made so many of them. You know, there aren't that many rich people in the world. There aren't that many powerful people in the world. There's middle-class people, and there are lower-middle-class people, and there's a lot of people around the world who have hardly much at all. James is saying, James is saying, God has special affection. That's an interesting way to put it. God has special affection for the people who don't have much money, don't have much wealth, but are rich in faith. They are the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. Who are we to reject those whom God has chosen? James is thinking about the poor Christians of the first century who were rich in faith, even though they had little of the world's goods. When God chooses members of his team, he usually starts with the poor so he can show the world what he can do with the people the world considers hopeless. God delights to take drug addicts, prostitutes, and broken people of all kind and redeem them by the blood of Jesus. By the way, this, what I'm saying right here, this was always the argument of General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, a movement that started in the slums of London and spread around the world. And, when the, and he, was, he was much criticized in his lifetime, especially by the critics and by the snobs and by what we would call today the infidels. 
The unbelievers made fun of William Booth and his Salvation Army, which, which had such a great root among the poorest of the poor in London. And this is his answer to the skeptics. Quote, we know what Jesus can do. We know what Jesus can do among the poor. Just take your infidelity down there and see if it changes anyone for the better. And then he would take the Salvation Army band down to those same slums, pray and sing and preach and feed the poor and give them a place to live and, and get them on their feet, and multitudes of broken lives would be redeemed. So that's number one. Favoritism denies kingdom principles. Number two, favoritism also dishonors the poor. Verses 6 and 7. But you've insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are insulting, who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now, that phrase there, slandering the noble name of him to, who, uh, to whom you belong, that's a little, that's, that's okay translation, really, but, but it's, it's actually in the Greek. They are slandering the name that was spoken over you referring back to the moment when they were baptized. They, and the name of Jesus was spoken over them. And they publicly in baptism were identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is saying, he's saying, why are you favoring the rich people? They're the very ones who attacked Jesus. And it was in his name that you were baptized. Remember what the rich do. They have the money to attack you. They hire the big-time lawyers to drag you into court. Why well, give favorable treatment to people like that? I heard about a man, and there, by the way, a number of stories like this. I heard about a man, an elder of a church, a Bible kind of church, who had been dismissed from leadership because of immorality, hadn't been made public yet. So what did he do? He threatened to sue his own church. If you go public, I will sue you. The poor don't have that option. But the rich think the rules don't apply to them. They live as if God doesn't exist. Their money gives them false security. Why favor them? So, help us understand, there's now a pointed challenge in verses 8 through 11. Now it's coming down to cases here. If you really keep the royal law in Scripture... Love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, that is if you look at people and you judge them by their face, by their outward appearance, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, verse 11, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Then all God's people read that and go, what is he talking about there? All right, just listen. Partiality, that is judging people on the basis of outward appearance, James wants us to understand it violates the royal law of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus told us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and your soul, and your mind, and your strength, and what? And your neighbor as yourself. On this, the law and the prophets saying, the whole Old Testament is comp comprehended in those two things. Love God completely. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the problem. 
Partiality is really bad precisely because we don't think it's all that bad. We don't class it with adultery or murder, but that's exactly what James is doing in these verses. You can't substitute good for evil. Any sin breaks the whole law. You can't say, well, I didn't commit murder, so it's okay if I favor the rich over the poor. Favoritism is wrong because you have murdered the poor man in your heart when you unfairly judged him. So I just just give you that to think about. Every time I teach this to young people at the, the Bible Institute, I'm always, it's, I marvel when, when I teach it to the students and think about it. It's always eye-opening. We know that murder and adultery are real bad. And James here is saying partiality, favoritism is just as bad in the eyes of God. Finally, in this passage, we have a Christian alternative. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. If you believe the Bible, then live by what the Bible says. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy, he says, triumphs over judgment. That's the end of our passage for tonight. That last little phrase. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Last phrase of verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The whole gospel, listen, the whole gospel is in that one phrase. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If I get what I deserve, I will end up in hell, and so will you. I don't want justice. Justice will destroy me. I am such a sinner that if I ask for justice, that's like asking for a one-way ticket to the lake of fire. What I deserve, I don't want. What I need, I don't deserve. And as I was writing those words down, I thought of a verse from the hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Until we see the depth of our sin. We will never rightly appreciate God's mercy. As long as we see ourselves as moderate sinners, we'll seek a moderate Christ to give us a moderate salvation. And we will certainly stand in judgment over those whose sins we judge to be worse than our own. But when God ever will pull back the curtains and let you and me see ourselves as we really are. We see our own depravity. When we see the depth of our own sin, the depth of our own rebellion, when we come to see all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned each one to his own way. When we understand how far we've gone away from God, then and only then will we say, wash me, Savior, or I die. And then... And only then will we be free to love our brothers and sisters in Christ without judging them by their outward appearance. In Christ, mercy triumphs over judgment.
Why isn't it that way in the church? May I just say this in closing? I think we need this because American Christianity is entertainment-oriented and celebrity-driven. If anything, it seems to be getting more that way to me. We are far too prone to swoon over the latest celebrity conversion and rush the latest hot convert to the pulpit so we can all applaud and congratulate ourselves on catching such a big fish for God. During the years in my pastorate, different places, my church members always made sure that I met any famous or important people who visited our church. I remember in one particular congregation I pastored, there was a rich man who would occasionally come visit our church. I always knew every time that man came to our church. You know why? Because the moment he and his wife walked into our building, somebody would see him. And they would come running up to me and grab me by the sleeve. Pastor Ray, Pastor Ray, come. Guess who's here today? We want you to meet him. And I would go and meet him. And he was always friendly. And his wife was always very, they were always very gracious. But every time they came, which was maybe over three years, a half a dozen times, something like that. But every single time they came, it was always, Pastor Ray, Pastor Ray, guess who's here today? I want you to know, I think it's great that we welcome visitors to our church, right? I think it's great. We are glad when we, when, we, when we open the doors of our church and we welcome anyone, anywhere to come in. And I think it's a great thing to make a big deal about people who come to visit us. You know what I want to see? I want the day to come. When somebody comes up and grabs my sleeve and says, Pastor Ray, Pastor Ray, guess what? We've got two prostitutes visiting the church today. Isn't that wonderful? Pastor Ray, there's a man here with AIDS, and he wants to know Jesus. Pastor Ray, here's a single mom with six children. This is her first time to visit. Pastor Ray, this man just got out of jail. He came to worship with us today. The sin is not that we make so much of celebrities. It's that we make so much less of the other people who visit us occasionally. When I was in the pastorate, I used to hear this from time to time. Well-meaning friends of mine would think of certain significant people out in our community, and they would say, I wish so-and-so would get saved. They have so much to offer, which usually means they have money they could give. Is God so broke? He needs another banker in his family. Is God so confused about the economy that he needs another stockbroker on his team? Nothing could be more worldly than valuing lost people based on what we think they could contribute to God's kingdom. That brings me back to the original point. Are all people created equal? Yes and no. In the eyes of God, we are all highly valued, deeply fallen, and greatly loved. Jesus will save anyone who turns to him. We believe that, don't we? That's what the ministry of Word of Life is based on, that anybody, anywhere can be saved. But those outward differences I mentioned, they will be with us as long as we live on planet Earth. There will always be rich and poor, young and old, male and female, black and white, different languages, different cultures, different educational levels, and different ethnic groups. Somehow, 
we got to find a way to say that everyone who belongs to Jesus belongs to us. Our Lord was no front runner. He felt at home with the rich and poor alike. He ministered to the religious professionals, and he was friends with the prostitutes and the drunkards. Many years ago, whoo, almost 50 years ago now, when I was a student right out of high school, I spent my first year at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. I was going to be a journalist. God worked in my heart, and that's when we moved to Chattanooga. Tennessee Temple met Marlene for one year at the University of Missouri. And I got involved that year with the, one of the Christian groups on campus. And I learned in that Christian group a song that was very cutting edge at that time. Hippy dippy contemporary 50 years ago. In fact, it seemed positively revolutionary. It's so old now, our kids have never heard it. But the first verse went like this. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We're one in the Spirit. We're one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. The final verse seems like a fitting application of our text. We will walk with each other. We'll walk hand in hand. We'll walk with each other. We'll walk hand in hand. And together we'll spread the news that God is in our land. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. I have already remarked that America, in many ways, is more divided than it has been in 150 years. In so many ways. So many ways. Not as much love as there ought to be. A whole lot of distrust. A whole lot of doubt. A whole lot of anger out there. And more it seems every day. What an opportunity. What an opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ at this crucial moment in history to let the world know that we are Christians by our love. How true it is mercy triumphs over judgment when Christians truly love each other. And that, my friends, is the fourth message to the 21st century church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's easier for us to read this passage than to do anything about it. These words hang in the air. They challenge us and they sting us. They convict us. Without you, without you, Lord, we're stuck right where we are. As you, Lord Jesus, showed mercy to us. Help us to show mercy to others so that the world will know that God is in our land, that they may know we are Christians by our love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. This podcast is made possible through the support of listeners like you. Come see us on the internet at www.keepbelieving.com. We'd love to hear from you this week. 
Join us for the next podcast from Keep Believing Ministries.